0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. For over 50 years, he was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He mentored many Christian leaders, including Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Joseph Stowell, and David Jeremiah, authored 16 books, and ministered in over 80 countries. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on worship served family style. The following material is copy written by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. One of the staggering revelations of God to be found in his word is the revelation of the seeking God. For example, in Luke 19, 10, we read, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. God in quest of souls to save. My friends, That's why Christianity is not a religion. Every religion has one thing in common. It is the search of man for God. Christianity is a revelation of the search of God for man. May I remind you, it was God who came walking in the cool of the garden asking Adam Where art thou? But there is another aspect to the seeking God that I would like to underscore in your thinking. If you have a Bible or a New Testament, will you turn to the Gospel by John chapter 4? You're familiar with the record of our Lord's encounter with the woman of Samaria. She sought to embroil him in a debate as to the location of worship. And our Lord attempts to focus her her thinking on the truth when he says in verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now mark the next statement. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is not only in quest of souls to save, he is in quest of souls who will worship. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't. And neither can anyone else. I'm only thankful to God that I can experience it. But I have never recovered from the truth. God is seeking my worship. And I believe we grieve the Holy Spirit every time we spurn that which he seeks. A student came into my office a number of years ago and said, professor I'm really not getting very much out of my Bible study. And I'm sure I jarred him no end when I said, you know, it really makes very little difference what you get out of your Bible study. The important thing is what God gets out of it. And God is seeking your worship. You see, worship is not an option, it's an essential. It's not something nice, it's something necessary. It's not something reserved for some devotionally minded individuals who if they have time and care to, might engage in. It's the Christian's highest occupation. And it's the lost cords of evangelicalism men and women as long as people emerge from our churches saying my that was a wonderful sermon you'll know we know nothing about worship it's only when people start exiting from our churches from their room in the morning for their personal devotion, saying, My, isn't he a wonderful Lord? Then you will know we are beginning to understand the greatest privilege God ever gave to a human being. Worship is missing in our churches because it's missing in our homes. It's missing in our personal lives. And I thought that to have a week devoted to the subject of worship and not include family worship and personal worship would be a serious neglect. So for a few moments tonight, I would like to spur your thinking. And by the way, if you are prone to go to sleep, don't fight it. (laughs) It's been a long day. You know, just fold your hands, put your head down on your chest, take five or ten Zs. When you wake up, you'll feel better. Just don't snore and bother the other customers. And whatever you do, don't fight it. Nothing bothers me more as a professor as watching a student sit there and go. (laughs) Just drives me up the wall. So do me a favor in my superannuated state. First of all, I'd like to share with you the crutches that people palm off for reasons for not having personal and family worship. I've been keeping a list of these for years. It's very impressive. I think someday I'm going to write a book on it. But I'd like to give you the three biggies tonight. The first one I hear over and over again is we don't have time. And that's a problem of priority. You don't have time for what? pastoring a church in Fort Worth, Texas a number of years ago. man in my church, father of five, was very delinquent in his attendance at the church and spiritual responsibilities. And as a young pastor, I felt it was my responsibility to confront him with his delinquency. And when I did, he said, Pastor, you don't understand. He said, the reason I can't come to church and I can't spend more time with my family is that I've got to work. And he was working two jobs and moonlighting on a third. So I said, who said you had to work? Well, (laughs) you know, Pastor, if if you don't work, you don't eat. Well, I said, who said you had to eat? (laughs) Well, he said, "Don't, don't be ridiculous. You know, if you don't eat, you don't live. I said, who said you have to live? Give me one verse of Scripture that says you have to live. Well, he said, Pastor, don't pull the rule book on me that way. I I don't know the Bible that well. I said, I do. And I can't find a verse of Scripture that says you ought to live. Did it ever occur to you, it would be better for you to die in fellowship with Jesus Christ than to go on living outside of fellowship with him? Well, he said, I hadn't thought of it that way. (laughs) Neither had I. (laughs) But I didn't tell him that. See, that's the ultimate issue. How important is it? Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, you have one of those little peephole texts that you need to explore. My Bible says, And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose, went out, departed to a solitary place, and was praying there. And you're forced to ask, what morning? Why, it's the morning after the busiest recorded day in the life of the Lord. There are only 52 recorded days from Jesus' life in the Gospels. And this was one crowded with miracles and teaching and exposure to people. And no one, except a person who has had a public ministry, has any idea of the drain of people on an individual. I go away and preach for a week and come back. I've spoken 30, 40 times, and my Christian friends... Always oh, say, uh, how was your vacation? You know, that tests my sanctification to the breaking. <laughs> point. I have the strongest urge to pick up a nearby chair and wrap it around their head. But you know, I found a better way. I take them with me. <laughs> I took a businessman, a CEO, out for a weekend. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, came back. He was woof. He said, Hendricks, it took me three weeks to recover. I said, look, I was speaking. He said, I was listening. <laughs> and very early in the morning, may I say it reverently, the morning in which he might have been tempted to sleep in. And what a built-in excuse. Excuse. I was busy, Lord, in your service yesterday. But so high on his priority list is intercourse with the infinite God that he's up a great while before day. If Jesus Christ, who had unbroken fellowship and communion with the Father, needed to pray, what must your need be? What must my need be? Well, there's the second crutch I hear over and over again, and that is, it's not convenient. And I can tell you right at the front end, it never will be. Gene and I had four children, and we never discovered a convenient time for family worship. I don't understand all I know. I just know the moment you decide to get your family together, or as an individual you decide you're going to carve out some time to spend with Jesus Christ, everything comes unglued everybody calls you everybody shows up at the house never never convenient you see the christian life is not a matter of convenience it's a matter of cost it's not a dream it's a discipline a little page out of the life of david's experience that has always grabbed me it's so insightful to his priority. Children of Israel were dying like flies. He comes to the prophet and says, what shall I do? And he says, you better offer up sacrifices, David. So David ends up outside the property of a man by the name of Araunah. Can you imagine? He looks out from his home and here's the king with all of his entourage. I suppose his heart skipped a couple beats. He goes out and says, David, what can I do for you? David says, I'd like to buy a piece of property. What do you want to buy property for? He said, because I've got to offer up sacrifices to the Lord our God. Can you imagine the mentality of Arana? David, you've got to be kidding. You're the king. I'm not about to sell you property. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the utensils. I'll give you everything you need. And David says, no, you won't. Ladies and gentlemen, I say it very seriously. David would have made a poor American because he was not a freeloader. He uttered one of the most significant statements that ever fell from his lips when he said, neither will I offer unto the Lord my God. God of that which costs me nothing. You see, David knew that the service that counts is the service that costs. And if you have a significant Christian life, a significant family, a significant ministry, I will guarantee you, you will not find it in a bargain basement sale. There's a high price tag. The third excuse I find is perhaps the most legitimate in some ways, and that is, uh, we don't know how. This is a problem of technique. I was speaking at Mount Hermon Bible Conference on the west coast, and apparently I referred to the family altar, the message was not on that subject, and at the end a man came up and he said, uh, about this family altar, do they handle them here? in the bookstore. (laughs) And I engage him in conversation and discovered he came out of a different religious orientation, had come to faith, and figured now that he's an evangelical, there must be another set of equipment that he needs to get. I came out of a broken home, Gene came out of a nominal Christian home, neither one of us had ever witnessed family worship in any form when we started our family. And I'm here to tell you there was very little material. I thank God for the Moody Bible storybook. One of the classic books of all time that I had somebody give me as a gift when my first child was born. And there wasn't too much else, I will guarantee you. Today... The evangelical church in America is the most enriched body of believers in all of church history. All you have to do is to go down to a Christian bookstore, spend a minimal amount of time, and you will discover a spate of material that is almost unlimited. Every conceivable kind. But you remember, Moses had some practical advice to give back in Deuteronomy 6 when he said, these words which I'm commanding you this day shall be upon your heart, and I want you to teach them to your children, diligently, and I want you to talk of them. And he spells it out. When? When you sit in your home. That presupposes you sit there. (laughs) (laughs) Moving right along, and when you walk by the way. In fact, he says, I want you to do it the last thing at night and the first thing in the morning. And then he gives you a specific illustration in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, Dad, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, Son, go ask your mother. (laughs) You'll notice that in your text. That's the reversed standard version. It's conservatively estimated that the average child will ask between one-half and one million questions in the process of growing up. If you've got a three-year-old, you're convinced you're already there. And Moses is saying, The finest way to communicate truth is in a relational setting. It takes a mother, a father, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, someone exposed to that child who's got the real disease because, my friend, you cannot impart what you do not possess. We're not talking about having family worship and we say, all right, kids, come on, we're going to have family worship. (laughs) Cut that out! (laughs) You get this legalistic type of thing which frankly is absolutely lethal to the process of teaching children truth. Now Moses says, you want to know how to do it? First of all, ask God to make it a thing of your heart. And then impress it upon the lives of your children, those with whom you come in contact, and do it in a relational setting where it's caught more than it is taught. Well, let's take just a moment to look at some of the components of worship, whether you are doing it as a single individual, as a couple, or as a family. The first one I want to call to your attention is the Word of God. You need to run through your mind every single day the truth that God wanted to communicate with you in the 20th century, and he wrote his message in a book. This book was not written to satisfy your curiosity. It was written to transform your life. It's not written to make you a smarter sinner. It's written to make you just like Jesus Christ. Shortly after I became a believer, someone wrote right here in the flyleaf of my Bible these words, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. As a student at Wheaton College many years ago, I will never forget sitting right down here where this young man is when Harry Ironside was preaching from this pulpit and hear him quote that and open my New Testament. See, that's still true. Dusty Bibles lead to dirty lives. Now let me suggest a few things that you can do. Again, whether you are doing it individually, you're in the dorm and there are a couple of you, meet together periodically for a time of worship, you're a couple, whether you have no children or your children are already gone, or whether you are still in the parenting process in its active form. First of all, you need to read the Word of God. Now, you know, many people seem to think it's a chapter a day keeps the devil away. And I've been asking kids for 38 years From Christian homes What turned you off most About family worship You know what they tell me? The top of the list It was so boring Now men and women It's a crime to bore a kid with the word of God You want to bore him? Bore him with Shakespeare (laughs) Bore him with nuclear physics Man, all kinds of fascinating things to bore him with don't bore him with the Word of God. That's why you need to get a good translation, a new, a new international version. You got teenagers? Try Phillips paraphrase. I can still remember reading that to my teenagers. I had four at one time. You know, when you get four teenagers, you either develop a sense of humor or you go neurotic. <laughs> we would read that thing, we'd come up to the climax, and I'd stop, and I said, Well, we'll take a rest. Oh, we're dead. Let's go on. You know, which is slightly different from, do we have another chapter we have to get through while everybody is moving into anesthesia? (laughs) Secondly, what about memorizing the Word of God? I have one great regret, and that is that I did not, as a young person, memorize more of the Word. This is why when I'm working in discipleship with my students, When I am working with business and professional men in our community, the first thing I do is to get them on the most intensive, vigorous memory program, brainwashing their mind with the Word of God. And Gene and I are still in a process of doing this. So we're memorizing the psalms. I said, okay, baby, give me the 40th psalms. She gives it to me. I said, it's tremendous, sweetheart, but you forgot verse 7. Oh, verse 7, that's right. Always forget verse 7. Howie, you try it. Okay, so I give it to her. She says, Howie, you're making tremendous progress, but you forgot verses 3 through 19. (laughs) one of the problems of getting old. (laughs) By the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. (laughs) What about studying the Word of God? You know what you ought to be teaching? You ought to be teaching the children in your home, your grandchildren, Anybody you are working with in a discipling relationship, you need to teach them how to study the Word for themselves. It's tragic that we should ever lead people to Christ, and this becomes a closed book because they don't even know where to start. That's what happened with me. I said, where shall I start? I says, anywhere. It's all profitable. So I land in Ezekiel right in the middle of the wheels. Woo! <laughs> I think maybe there's a better part, so I flip over and land in revelation, in the vials and the rats, convinced that what they had taught me in another group was true, and that is that you needed a professional to dispense the stuff. And I closed that book for one solid year, the first year of my Christian life. I can still remember the dear brother that came along and said to me, Hey, Howie, are you into the word for yourself? I said, No, as a matter of fact, I'm not. He said, How come? Well, I said, In the first place, I don't know where to begin. And in the second place, I don't know how to go about it. And he smiled knowingly and said, Sit down. Let me help you. You see, you need to get people in the process of discovery. That's why we don't worship. You can't worship secondhand. It's like falling in love, man This is a highly, intensely personal process And it's when a person begins to get into the truth of God's word Child, teenager, adult, senior citizen Discovers the truth that God has revealed for himself Something happens he becomes, she becomes a highly motivated individual. And, of course, we ought to spend increasingly more time applying the Word of God. Finding out what's going on at school. See, this isn't a rabbit's foot. You don't rub this thing. This has to be applied to life. Did you ever come home, gentlemen, from your office, where you're wrestling with all of those alligators, and share what the Lord is teaching you in applying the Word of God down at the office? Do you ever ask a teenager to tell you what's going on down there at the school? How are you having opportunities to take what we've been discussing around the table and applying it in your own. But not only should we have time for the word, we should have time for prayer. The word of God, God speaks to us in prayer. We have that incredible opportunity of speaking to God. Jean and I started something a number of years ago for which we would trade nothing. As I told you, we had no background no models so we just started amazing what you can do when you don't know anything we got ourselves a little loose leaf notebook and on this side we wrote we ask and on this side we wrote he answers you know my friends I don't know of anything that has taught my children the theology of prayer as much as that little book first thing we wrote in I remember was $10 I was teaching at the seminary we were three months behind in our salary. We have one of these interesting policies. The money comes in, you get paid. Doesn't come in, you don't get paid. Fascinating. <laughs> Particularly when you explain it to a Chevrolet dealer. You, say, you know, run that by one more time. <laughs> we were down to our last meal. And I wrote down $10. And I remember my older daughter, Barb, prayed that day, typical child's prayer. Dear Jesus, you know we really need this. So I get down to the seminary and teach, go over to the post office, pull out some mail. Got a letter from a friend of mine who was graduated with me from Wheaton College years before. I'd lost contact with him and he with me. He said, "Holly, I just got a." piece of literature from the seminary, and I see you are teaching there. My wife and I have been praying, asking what God would have us do with some of the money that he's given us, so we decided to send it to you, and if you can't use it, pass it on to someone who needs it. There's a little paper clip on the back, and you turn it over, and there's a fresh $10 bill. Man, I go, wow, there it is. And I go home, and I put it down at the table, and I say, isn't that fantastic, kids? Barb said, well, what's so fantastic about that? Isn't that what we asked Jesus for? <laughs> you know, I'm pops underneath the rug. See, one of our problems as older people is we get educated beyond our intelligence. Sometimes we've had to write no. Do you ever do that? I was a youth director in a church just west of the city here for a number of years. There was a woman in that church who had designs for me. Don't misunderstand. It was with respect to her daughter. She was convinced that it was God's will I marry her daughter. She told me every week. <laughs> One day she said that God told me. Well, I said, that's wonderful, madam, but he never informed me of the fact. She even said she had a dream that I was married to her daughter. And I have another way of describing this. And finally, she got so exasperated with me, she said, You're supposed to be a man of God. I'm going to pray for you. Will you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? <laughs> Tremendous blessing. you ever think of some of the moronic things you've asked God for? My wife and I asked for several children. <laughs> One of the things you learn is where to pause. <laughs> God appeared to answer the additional children. Beyond the four we have, only they were born dead. I know what it is to come home from a hospital and have four kids meet me at the door and say, Hey, Dad, is it a boy or a girl? And we go over to the divan and kneel down and get out our little book and write no. That's great teaching. I'm an educator. My friend, I cannot structure educational experience comparable to that. No way. And sometimes we have to write weight. That was true of my father. Some of you know how my father came to Christ. We prayed for my father for years. I prayed for him for 42 years. Came down to Dallas to see us. We went out to the plane My two boys were particularly interested, we went out to see him. My father came to the doorway of that plane, boy my kid took off, and I followed Bill when I got to the bottom of that ramp. He said to my father, hey granddaddy, do you know Jesus yet? My father said, no, son, I'm afraid I don't. Well, he said, you will pretty soon, because we're praying for you. (laughs) When my father came to Christ in Washington, D.C., and I went to see him for the last time on the planet, threw his arms around me and said, son, I'm awfully sorry. I took so long to make the critical decision. Do me a favor. I said, I'll do anything for you. Thank the kids for praying for me." Long fuse to that prayer. You've been praying for parents and for children and for friends and brothers and sisters. Hang in there. Go to the brow of the hill. I hope you also include in your time of worship, either personally or as a family, the use of music. Why, what a beautiful demonstration we've had this week. You know, one of the reasons I, I would come, he doesn't invite me to do this, but I would come if I never had an opportunity to speak, just for the music alone. Man, this is an enriching experience. You know, what are you doing to your kids? To teach them, musically, the truth of the Word of God. Wherever I go, around the world, all of the third world countries, two basic books. One is a Bible, one is a hymn book. Are you teaching your children the hymns of the faith? When morning gilds the skies, my heart awakening cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his praise. Are you teaching your kids that? My younger daughter, my older daughter was in university. There was no campus crusade, no inner varsity no navigators, no evangelical church with any penetration on the second largest campus in the state of Texas. She often told me, you know, Dad, I was the only sober person on Sunday morning. I spent most of Saturday night and Sunday morning dragging him in. And I get up, and I can remember singing When Morning Gilds the Skies my heart-awakening cries. May Jesus Christ be praised. Men and women, we've got to fortify the next generation to face the realities that it will bring. And by the way, if you're having problems getting your kids practice, to practice, this is a wonderful way to do it. Use them in family worship. You know, a little gal play the violin. I mean, it was Grim! <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's not like these guys down here. Blow the horn. <laughs> we say, okay, Bill, you're on. One week from today in family work, boy, he'd blow his head off. Getting ready for that thing. What a wonderful heritage to get. Richard Baxter, Great. Preacher of the Word of God. Took a cultured, highly educated, very sophisticated parish. Preached for almost three years with absolutely no visible results. Broke his heart. Came into his study one day, threw himself across the floor, said, oh God, if you don't do something I'm through. Baxter said, it seemed as if the voice of God became audible, at least to me, when he said, Baxter, you've been asking me to bring revival, but you're asking for it in the wrong place. Why don't you ask me to bring it in the homes of your parish? the great Richard Baxter, eminent preacher that he was, went from home to home in that parish, spent one entire night with every family, helping them establish a family worship time. For the singles, he would get two and three together, and they'd spend the whole night learning how to worship as a group of singles. One by one God began to light the fires all over that parish which catapulted the church and Richard Baxter to the fame for which he's known. It intrigues me as I travel across America how many places I go where we talk about revival, but I hear so little about it beginning In our homes. Beginning. In my heart. A seminary professor. I'm not exempt. Just because of what I know. Just because of what I've done means nothing. If my heart is cold toward the living God. And I believe we could transform the cause of Christ all out of recognition if the homes and the individuals represented here tonight alone would emerge from this week focused as it has been and will be on worship to say, Lord, you are seeking my worship, I don't want to spurn what you see. Dear Father, how patient you are with us. We're very slow learners. We're very dull in the spiritual realm. And yet graciously and patiently you continue to meet us in our area of greatest need. And I pray, Father, that fires will begin in the hearts of many of us tonight and in our homes that will never go out. And that will bring the revival that we so desperately need in our superficial, giddy age. Because we ask it to the glory of Jesus Christ and in His name. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.